Nietzsche wrote that there is a point in the history of a society when it becomes so pathologically soft and tender that, among other things, it sides even with those who harm it, criminals, and does this quite seriously and honestly. That sentiment by the German philosopher speaks to the spirit of our time, and it relates to a talking point you may have heard about the recently acquitted Kyle Rittenhouse, that he shouldn't have been in Kenosha, Wisconsin, on the night he shot three and killed two people in self-defense. But Rittenhouse was there, and those people were shot because our leaders failed, and our media incited a riot by lying about the Jacob Blake shooting, then suppressed reporting on just how devastating the Kenosha riots were, then tried to lynch Kyle. It is therefore worth revisiting those days of rage across the country, when despite the destruction that blazed through American communities, the national media was more concerned with demonizing white people than justifying the riots while suppressing the facts about their destructiveness. These 72 hours that followed George Floyd's death on Monday, May 25th, saw Minneapolis plunged into a shocking state of disorder. Rioters reduced to Ash Midtown Corner, a $30 million six-story rental complex with 189 apartments for low-income renters, including more than three dozen units for very low-income tenants. Looters pillaged businesses big and small, with the latter already struggling due to COVID-19 lockdowns. The Town Talk Diner and Gastro Pub, a historic restaurant in Minneapolis, was destroyed three days before it was rescheduled to open for outdoor service after months of being closed. A wheelchair-bound woman was struck multiple times in the head, maced, and sprayed with a fire extinguisher for attempting to stop looters at a store. Mobs predominated by minorities ironically devastated minority-owned businesses. Government vehicles were hijacked, looted, and demolished across the city. By Thursday morning, May 28th, the city of Lakes resembled Mogadishu more than any Midwestern metropolis. But more mayhem was to come. That night, riders set fire to the Minneapolis Police Department's 3rd Precinct, Hours after officers retreated from the burning building with agitators hot on their heels, a woman was found dead with visible signs of trauma inside a car in the middle of the road by North Bryant and 17th Avenue. Later, the charred body of a man will be found in the wreckage of a pawn shop set ablaze by Montez Terrell Lee on May 28th. The New York Post reported that the shop is several blocks east of the police department's 3rd Precinct station house, which was set ablaze that same night in an explosion of anger over George Floyd's death three days earlier. As Minneapolis burned, riots erupted in other cities, and the discord would continue to roil for days. Their sound and fury raged on in stark contrast with then-President Donald Trump's silence and inaction. On the morning of May 29th, key domestic policy advisors Jared Kushner, Brooke Rollins, and Jerron Smith urged President Trump not to crack down on rioters because it would seem racist to do so. Instead, Jared Kushner would invite rapper Ice Cube to the White House, soliciting his input for what became the Platinum Plan. The rapper is not exactly known for his love of police. He asked Kushner for a $500 billion capital infusion, also known as reparations, exclusively for the black community. He got his wish with the added promise of more criminal justice reform in the Second Step Act. Kushner also made soft-on-crime policies central at the Republican National Convention, 
and there were reports that bail reform was also on the table for Trump's second administration. On the night of May 29th, gunmen attacked two federal protective contractors during a Black Lives Matter demonstration in Oakland, California. David Patrick Underwood, one of the contractors, died of his wounds at the scene. The next day in Dallas, Texas, a white man who attempted to scare off mobs of looters with a machete was chased down and severely beaten. Elijah Schaefer, a reporter on the ground, live-streamed rioters pulling a black man out of his car and savagely beating him in the streets. An internal police memo reviewed by an ABC affiliate revealed that more than 50 businesses in downtown Dallas were damaged due to looting and or civil unrest, and multiple officers were injured. On May 31st, a woman surrounded by demonstrators was pulled from her vehicle in Niagara Square and beaten in the street. By Monday, June 1st, scores of Secret Service uniformed division officers and special agents sustained injuries from rioters throwing bottles, bricks, and Molotov cocktails in Washington, D.C. How many of the assailants do you suppose are being held in Gitmo-like conditions, the way January Sixers are? None. Finally breaking his silence, President Trump suggested that he might deploy the United States military to quell lawlessness, presumably by invoking the Insurrection Act, conveniently signed by Thomas Jefferson in 1807 for just this occasion. Trump threatened to invoke that law in 2019 to remove illegal aliens from the United States. But then, as in this instance, the president's bark turned out to be worse than his bite. He quietly sheathed the executive sword and settled then for deploying unarmed National Guardsmen in the nation's capital. June 1st would be one of the most violent days in many cities. Looting, vandalism, and shootings swept through Memphis, Tennessee, with one officer shot at multiple times after responding to a burglary call. In Las Vegas, a rioter shot police officer Shea Michelonis in the head, leaving him in critical condition. The Las Vegas Review-Journal reports that Michelonis is paralyzed from the neck down, requires 24-hour care, and breathes with the assistance of a ventilator. Looters hit an officer in Greenwich Village as they fled a cell phone store in an SUV. Three officers at a George Floyd demonstration in Buffalo, New York, were also injured when an SUV deliberately plowed into them, the same day that the Chicago Police Department reported 132 officers were wounded during the riots, and three officers in Davenport, Iowa, were ambushed by gunmen. The chaos only continued to escalate the next day. On Tuesday, June 2nd, four police officers were shot in St. Louis while confronting protesters. One retired police captain, David Dorn, was murdered by looters while protecting his friend's pawn shop. His final moments were broadcasted on Facebook Live by a bystander. They just killed this old man at the pawn shop over some TVs, said the man streaming on his phone. Come on, man, that's somebody's granddaddy. Responding to reports of 20 to 30 people pillaging a pawn shop near Yankee Stadium, an NYPD sergeant was run over and left with severe injuries. And now we arrive at the incident that sparked rioting in Kenosha, Wisconsin. On August 23rd, Jacob Blake broke into his ex-girlfriend's home and attempted to steal a vehicle and abduct her children. He had already violated a restraining order and had a warrant out for his arrest on felony domestic abuse charges. When the police arrived, she told them, He's got my kid, 
He's got my keys. Blake had already loaded the car with three children. Police tackled him, tased him, but Blake wouldn't comply. When he was finally shot by an officer, he had been pressing a knife toward the cop's torso as he tried to get in the car and drive away. The media focused on the racial aspect. White cop shoots black suspect. The ensuing rioting wiped out uninsured businesses and destroyed livelihoods. According to a former Times reporter, the New York Times deliberately suppressed reporting about the facts on the ground until after the 2020 election. The rest is history. Even before the fires of mayhem began to die out across America, it became evident that many affected cities were releasing rioters just as soon as they were caught. Prosecutors in Washington, D.C. released hundreds of rioters, looters, and vandals with a slap on the wrist. The Washington Post reported on June 1st that although many of those arrested were charged by police with felony rioting, that charge was dropped by prosecutors in most cases. After making their initial appearances in D.C. Superior Court, nearly all defendants were free pending future court appearances. Two days after Dorn's murder, the few people arrested in St. Louis for rioting, looting, and committing arson were set free. Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt tweeted that, In a stunning development, our offices learned that every single one of these St. Louis looters and rioters arrested were released back onto the streets by local prosecutor Kim Gardner. In Dallas, an ABC affiliate reported that Police Chief Renee Hall reversed her decision to file charges against 674 people who went onto the Margaret Hunt Hill Bridge during a demonstration. Hall described the people obstructing the highway as peaceful, but these agitators have shown that they only remain peaceful so long as all before them bend the knee, as Hall, along with so many of her officers and city officials, did. New York quietly set loose hundreds of rioters and looters due to the state's new bail reform law. It eliminated cash bail for most misdemeanor and nonviolent felony charges, including stalking, assault with a serious injury, burglary, various drug offenses, and even some kinds of arson and robbery. During the first three months the law was in effect, New York's jail population dropped significantly. At the end of 2019, the number of people jailed across the state was close to 20,000. By March 2020, the number had dipped to 15,000. At the time, New York City Police Chief Terrence Monahan said just about all of the looters arrested will be released without bail. Oscar Odom, a former NYPD detective, told Fox News that thanks to bail reform, 99.9% .9 of the people arrested and released from jail likely went right back to looting. New York's bail law brings to mind something that happened in California during the lockdowns, all but forgotten amid the spectacle of violence. The California Judicial Council set bail at zero for most misdemeanor and low-level felonies to keep the jail population lower in early April, supposedly to slow the spread of COVID-19. But as a result, police in Glendora arrested and released a man for car theft and other property crimes three times in the same day. The bail policy prevented them from keeping him in custody. For the same reason, California also released several high-risk registered sex offenders, one of whom was arrested two weeks after his release for exposing himself. 
In the months leading up to nationwide unrest, cities across the country quietly enacted similar bail reforms with COVID-19 as the pretext to release tens of thousands of inmates. On March 31, 2020, KSDK, an NBC affiliate in St. Louis, reported that Kim Gardner facilitated the release of many inmates, including a man who fired a shot at a cab driver during a robbery, one accused of assaulting a woman who said her child accused him of sexual abuse, another who robbed a restaurant and pointed a gun at an employee, an inmate who shot another man, and a man who fled the scene of a fatal accident. When Missouri Attorney General Schmidt complained that Gardner had not notified victims of their release in violation of the state's public records law, Gardner appealed to the convenient necessities of the hour. Your mischaracterization of my actions to prevent the spread of COVID-19 are inappropriate and concerning, she wrote, without addressing any of Schmidt's claims of malfeasance. Two months later, the violent unrest in Missouri claimed the life of David Thorne. It is difficult to get answers from police departments about whether inmates released on the pretense of coronavirus concerns were subsequently rearrested, cited, or given a summons for participating in nationwide mayhem. We do know, however, that many of these inmates fit the profile of people whose release would act as kindling for the bonfires of violence that we saw. Joseph Edward Williams, one of more than 160 inmates released from Hillsborough County Jails in Florida amid the COVID-19 jailbreak, murdered a man the day after he was freed. In Denver, Colorado, a man paroled due to coronavirus concerns killed a 21-year-old woman three weeks after his release. Between early April and mid-May, the Denver Post reported that the vacancy rate in the prison system grew to 11% from 1%. Two prisoners in New York released from jail early due to the coronavirus subsequently committed crimes, one in which a victim was stabbed with a screwdriver. The Virginia Parole Board released violent convicted felons in early May, including a man who had killed a police officer in Richmond and two other people who killed while they were minors in Suffolk. A man in California in prison for beating and raping a woman he held captive was released amid the pandemic, only to be killed in a standoff with SWAT. The Michigan Department of Corrections paroled hundreds of prisoners to flatten the curve. A sheet of inmates shows a litany of charges ranging from homicide, armed robbery, assault with intent to commit murder, criminal sexual conduct with a child under 13, assault with intent to commit rape, child sexually abusive activity or material, carjacking, malicious destruction of fire or police property, arson, and more. All set free to stop the spread, no matter the cost. Washington's Governor Inslee released 1,100 criminals, from prolific DUI offenders and burglars to drug dealers. Two convicted murderers were among the more than 200 inmates released by the Massachusetts Department of Corrections, one of which had stabbed her victim 108 times over the course of several hours. On April 16th, WIFR reported that Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker had granted clemency to more than 1,000 prisoners because of the pandemic. A spreadsheet titled COVID Final List of Early Exits shows charges ranging from sexual assault, armed robbery, making heroin, aggravated domestic battery, aggravated vehicular hijacking of a handicapped person, and murder. By April 29th, Illinois had unleashed almost 4,000 inmates, including 64 convicted murderers. A list of inmates reveals rapists, thieves, drug dealers, and more. 
Cook County, the seat of which is Chicago, released hundreds of inmates because of the coronavirus while hiding their names and charges from police. This is only a partial list of events last year fueled by Black Lives Matter and opportunistic ideologues and cynics. The very foundations of public and private life underwent a tectonic shift as the ground trembled beneath the feet of masochistic whites, carrying the raised fist of black power on a litter garlanded with flowers. Soaring over and above that golden calf of liberal white self-loathing and narcissism are violent crime rates in cities across the country that show no sign of abating. Policing efforts across America are increasingly retreating from countering violent crime to acting as the enforcement arm of the managerial regime. The military is thoroughly infected with the anti-white, anti-American blight that we call critical race theory. Corporations that gave material and moral support to Black Lives Matter effectively fueled the riots that destroyed small businesses, claimed the lives of Americans, and fundamentally changed the country for the worse. The left, however, insists that not enough blood and tears were shed. Of course they would. They're living larger than ever today. BLM co-founder Patrice Kahn Coolers, a self-described Marxist, went on a real estate buying spree, acquiring high-end homes in the United States and eyeing ultra-exclusive property abroad. Documents reviewed exclusively by the Associated Press show that Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation pulled in over $90 million last year in donations. Con Coolers insists she does not receive a salary or benefits from Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. It's a wonder, then, how she acquired some of these properties. Last year, the New York Post reported Con's Coolers and her spouse, Janiah Khan, ventured to Georgia to acquire a fourth home, a custom ranch on 3.2 rural acres in Conyers, featuring a private airplane hangar with a studio apartment above it and the use of a 2,500-foot paved grass community runway that can accommodate small airplanes. The Economist estimates a much larger number in overall donations to BLM than does the Associated Press. Between May and December 2020, donations to BLM-related causes reached over $10 billion. Where has that money gone? And how many activists have fared so splendidly as con coolers? On the right, the architects of the Trump White House's soft-on-crime policies and positions are now conservative celebrities. Brooke Rollins is the president and CEO of the hilariously named America First Policy Institute, or Jerron Smith is chairman of the Center for Second Chances, carrying on the good work of letting bad people out of prison. Kushner is intimately involved in AFPI, and the Institute aims to be central to Trump's policy agenda if he is re-elected in 2024. As an institution, the GOP is more or less on board with the basic narrative of systemic racism, choosing the likes of Senator Tim Scott as its figurehead. Scott, who virtue signaled about George Floyd and Jacob Blake, has been totally silent about Kyle Rittenhouse. The official Twitter accounts of the GOP, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, and the House Republicans are equally silent. Ronald McDaniel gave us one lousy tweet about Rittenhouse only after it was safe to do so. We should all be happy that Kyle won round one. But there is still a long fight ahead. Not just against the left and the media, but against a conservatism that grants enormous concessions to the enemies of civilization. Nietzsche was right. 
These are pathologically soft times, and they call for hard men.